Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delight, show number 47. Get that, for nearly 50 for God's sake. How is everyone? Hope everyone is fine and dandy. So we are on to show 47 and today is a fun pack show. We have poetry by Samantha Henderson, a new poet to our books, our ranks. Flash fiction comes from none other than Terry Bisson. We have another review by Julie Davis. New titles, I will be looking in and delving into two new titles that fell on my desk. Here they are. One, two. <laughs> Fact comes from our good friend, Mr. J.J. Campanella, Science News. Main fiction is by F. Paul Wilson, following in Lawrence Santuro's kind of grisly story last week. We have another one, all on this, like in a build-up to Halloween. We have Faces by F. Paul Wilson, another one that is slightly disturbing. So that sounds a good show. I hope you will join me and I hope you will enjoy it. So just before we get into Oral Delights, don't forget, please, if you have anything to do with Bruce Sterling, <laughs> his mum, <laughs> our Bruce be a right naughty boy, please send in any feedback, any memories of reading Bruce Sterling's stories, anything like that, mp3, send it over to starshipsover at gmail.com, flash fiction, if you want to have a little tingle at flash fiction, please send it over, send it just Pop it in an email, attach it, send it in the body of an email. I will certainly take it and pass it over to Grant. So, we will kick off today's show with a little bit of poetry. Today's poetry comes by Samantha Henderson. Just to give you a little bio on Samantha, Samantha Henderson's poetry and prose has appeared in Realms of Fantasy, Strange Horizons, Clark's World Fantasy... Lone Star Stories and Helix. Her novel, Heaven's Bones, was released by Wizards of the Coast in 2008 and her short story, Bottles, is on this year's preliminary Nebula nominations list. She lives in Southern California with a family and too many corgis at the moment. So, the Starship Sofa presents... King's Man After Alfred Noyes, The Highwayman by Samantha Henderson You must understand... I thought she was his whore like the others. I knew he had a dozen besses across the countryside at a dozen inns, a dozen slow-eyed, black-tressed whores. We paid for the ale in good gold coin, and there was talk of sport with the wench after. But we'd have paid her, too, so thought it no harm. Whose idea it was to bind the musket so, I can't remember. The muzzle bit like a hard iron mouth. 
I laughed with the rest until I saw her eyes, hard as black ice, and back to the window to keep my watch. I can't remember why I turned. I think I heard a sound, the tap of a fingernail against the trigger, or the creak of a tight-bound shoulder joint. However it was, I turned and saw, before I heard the shot, a haze of fine red droplets, a torso torn in two, one white breast hanging by a thin strip of skin. After three men puked their guts, after we untied her and laid her on the bed, after we wiped our hands on the curtains, after her father saw, I was happy to wait all night and morning and noon for a chance to kill him. As we fired, I thought too late to spare the horse, which screamed in the road until Dobbin put a bullet through its skull, a handsome bay with a black, black mane, coarse black hair like hers. My beer is bitter in my throat. My bread is ashes in my mouth. A puff of red like dust on a dry road. A horse screaming and one white breast. There you go. Thank you, Samantha Henderson. Look out for some more of Samantha's work. Do pop over to her website. There will be a link on our main website. And thank you, Diane Severson. Great narration. Do pop over again to Diane's site, a regular narrator on the Starship sofa. So, flash fiction, we come on to Terry Biston. Terry has been very kind to give us quite a number of stories. Just to give you a heads up on Terry Biston, if no one kind of knows where he comes from, born 1942 in Kentucky, American science fiction and fantasy author, best known for his short stories, including the one we ran a few months ago, probably the most honoured science fiction story out there in Storyville. Bears Discover Fire, which won Hugo and Nebula Awards. Today's narration comes from David Lamb. David Lamb is a fundraising consultant with Blackboard, a company that makes software for non-profit organisations. He lives in Parker, Colorado, a suburb of Denver, with his wife, dog and two cats. They have two grown children and two grandchildren. In his spare time, he likes to run, hike, ski and read. There you go, a new narrator on the Starship Sofa, Mr David Lamb. David, thank you so much. So without further ado, the Starship Sofa presents... Captain Ordinary by Terry Bisson It's a bird, said a little boy. It's a plane, said a little girl. A man on the street looked up. A perfectly ordinary man in tights and a cape. It was indeed a plane trailing white smoke over the city. Biplane, he muttered. Can it be? It was. The summons he had long awaited. Even as he watched, the words began forming. Calling, cap. He didn't bother looking for a phone booth. They had all been hauled away years before. While everyone else on the street was watching the plane, he stripped off his tights, his cape. Calling, Captain Ordinary. And before the words were fully formed, there was a neatly folded costume on the curb. If anyone looked down and saw a man in slacks and a sport coat standing in line at a nearby Starbucks, they thought nothing of it. Nothing out of the ordinary in Midtown, New York. Unnoticed by all except a select few, every third Starbucks has a narrow door between the broom closet and the unisex John slash Jane. 
Captain Ordinary's decaf soy latte order got him the key. He felt a moment's claustrophobia as the rainforest-free, full-wood door clicked shut behind him, and then... nothing. Twelve hours later, Captain Ordinary was in an abandoned quarry on the side of a remote Adriandac peak, passing his hand over the damp stone in a mystical pattern handed down for centuries. He stepped back, waiting for the door to lens open... nothing. He rang the bell. Over here, said a bearded, tweedy figure, beckoning from a nearby cleft in the rock. You're late. The teleporter was on the blink, Ordinary said, as he followed his host down the winding stairway into the bowels of the mountain. I had to take the subway, then the bus. Tell me about it, said Dr. Forever, in the thick brogue that identified him as one of the immortals charged with guarding humanity against extraordinary dangers. The others are just now getting here themselves. There is no time to lose. Captain Ordinary felt a thrill as he entered the electrically lighted conference room and saw that the oval table was surrounded by familiar figures in colorful costumes. It wasn't every day that his leader and mentor assembled the entire rad pack of differently abled emergency mutants from around the globe. I have dreadful news, said the door Scott, as he seated himself at the head of the table. I have reason to believe that the earth has been covered with some kind of mundanity shroud that renders us all powerless, more or less. Tell me about it, muttered Nanoman, groaning as he squeezed into his seat. His ability to make himself microscopic was the key to so many of the Rad Pack's successful efforts. Full-sized, he looked a little broad in the beam, not to mention annoyed. "'I suspected as much,' said Rolex Girl, whose ability to travel backward and forward in time at will had proven so handy in the past. "'My watch has stopped in the present.' "'Something has slowed me down for sure,' said FTL, the bullet-headed dwarf, whose ability to outrun life itself had resulted in so many thrilling rescues.' I came at the trot. My Nikes are hardly warm. Where did this shroud come from? asked Captain Ordinary, adjusting his balls and his slacks as he sat down at the table. How can we overcome it? First, we need a better look at it, said the gruff Scott, turning to Seti, whose gift for intimate contact with alien explorers had resulted in so many penetrating insights. I was hoping that you could ask the visitors to examine the mundanity shroud from the outside. I wish, said he, responded despondently, squirming in the donut-shaped cushion that he was never without. I had been trying to contact those who probed me in the past, but without success. I'm beginning to wonder if it wasn't all a dream. This is bad, said the Tweedy Scott, beginning to look dismayed. "'What about the Hawking?' asked Captain Ordinary. "'The interstellar spaceship that was dispatched several years ago "'to look for Earth-like planets among the distant stars. "'Perhaps that intrepid crew can look back at our planet "'and tell us what they see.' "'I thought of that,' said the immortal Minter, "'who was starting to sound shaky. "'But they've all gone starkers from the smell of the ship. "'They began to lose it last month "'when the methane ball futures went south. "'Plus, it would take hours to get a message to them through the shroud.' "'Oh, dear,' said Captain Ordinary. "'It's that powerful?' 
It is apparently woven out of some kind of multi-dimensional superstring. The Hibernian groaned, a tight weave indeed. Then, rallying his fading powers, he turned to the latest arrival, who was circling the table, having a hard time deciding where to sit. Quantum gal, perhaps you can use your wormhole lens to get a better view, from an alternate but nearby universe, perhaps. I tried it on the way over," she said sadly. "All I can see is a hole with what looks like a worm at the bottom." Then, all is lost," groaned the failing Scot. "This impenetrable mundanity shroud, doubtless, portends some awesome evil. I fear, and we are powerless against it." Power unless is awesome doom," said a rasping, metallic but welcome voice. They all brightened. They had forgotten I, I, the emotionless but brilliant computer intelligence that had constructed itself after a nuclear mishap, and since given them so much crucial guidance. Even Doctor Forever seemed encouraged. What can you tell us, I, I? Speak up, for God's sake. Is God there? No, speak awesome. The digital consciousness droned dispassionately, and is as does doom say ever. Gone bonkers," said the newly dismayed Scott. "That's it. We're all done for, unless." He closed his eyes and his chin dropped to his chest. They all stared. "Unless what?" they all asked at once. No answer. What's he thinking? Ordinary asked Psy Guy, whose uncanny ability to read minds had proven so helpful in past crusades. Beats me. I have trouble reading my own mind these days, much less his. No wonder he's dead," said Nano Man, who could tell by looking, even without microsizing and entering any of the expired Scots' several orifices. I thought he was immortal," said Rolex Girl disgustedly. "Perhaps, in a way, he still is," said Cyber Boy, whose mutant ability to surf the Matrix had shown them so many cybernetic shortcuts. The diminutive teen lifted the former Doctor Forever's gray ponytail and pulled a tiny device from the slot in the back of his thick neck. "Just for kicks," he said. "I downloaded our leader's brain into this flash drive." The Rad Pack breathed a collective sigh of relief as Cyber Boy stuck the flash drive under his tongue and sucked. But their hopes were dashed when he said, "System failure. All I'm getting is an error message. Digital overload." "Shit," said Rolex Girl. "Bit of a problem," said Nano Man. "Verified," said the Dwarf. Not necessarily," said Captain Ordinary. He knew it was his job as control to step up and take command. I have a plan. What's that? They all asked at once. Go home, get a job, get married, have kids. I'm gay," said several. You can adopt," said Captain Ordinary. He was getting into the swing of it. His voice had a sudden ring of authority. Take a break! Don't you deserve a rest after all you've done? Dress down, live it up, eat out, watch TV, mow the lawn. There are power mowers, you know. Take a course, learn、uh, physics.
Don't even think about it, said Quantum Gal, who was still circling the table, trying to decide which chair to take. Or form a book club, said Captain Ordinary. This was what he was here for. Read to Jane Austen, or better yet, Kim Stanley Robinson. Who's she? They all asked at once. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Terry Bissons. Terry, thank you so much. Please pop over to Sarah's site. I see he's had a little bit of a makeover there, so you'll see things on there. And David, thank you so much for that narration. A fine narration, sir. You will be getting some more. <laughs> oh, yes. So we come on to the review by Julie Davis. Julie, which book are you looking at today? Assam and Darjeeling by T.M. Camp, read by T.M. Camp. This book originally appeared on T.M. Camp's website and also through iTunes. This review of Assam and Darjeeling originally appeared at SFF Audio. A masterful and nuanced book, Assam and Darjeeling, is the story of a quest straight into legendary mythological landscape. Two children's efforts to save their mother serves as a lens through which we see pure love, redemption, and sacrifice. To get a little more specific, let's look at the book description, what you might normally find on the back of a printed book. It all begins with a car accident on a snow-covered road. Two kids and their mother end up in intensive care. The kids are banged up, but their mother is in a coma, hovering on the edge of death. Drifting in a pale, ghostly world of their own, the kids resolve to find her and bring her back. So begins their journey into the underworld, where the remnants of Dante, shreds of folklore, and echoes of mythology struggle to keep pace with the world above. Demons with cell phones, ancient deities tooling around in vintage convertibles, gods and goddesses whose pantheons have fallen out of favor, waiting tables in an all-night diner to make ends meet, a lonely queen wandering through her winter palace waiting for spring, a little boy named Edgar who set off on his own after the Black Plague to wander other worlds above and below, looking for something he lost long ago. A congregation of souls fooled into believing they've reached the fields of heaven, while the demon who ensnared them feeds on their faith and their fear. This story will appeal to anyone who knows and loves classic Western mythology. And isn't that just about every science fiction lover? I know when I was a kid, I began reading legends of Greek and Roman goddesses, and that led almost organically to science fiction. T.M. Camp has tweaked those old legends just enough to make us puzzle about each new situation and character's origin. When it falls into place, we feel a sense of triumph for getting it right, or the need to dash to the reference books to see what unknown myth he's referring to. One of the truest pleasures of Assam and Darjeeling is the relationship between the forceful younger sister Darjeeling and the thoughtful, sensitive older brother Assam. The way that they work together to save their mother, yet often clash in the details of how they must proceed, is what carries the story and makes us believe in their relationship. It rings true to anyone who has siblings whom they love, but who also have the capacity to irritate beyond belief in daily life. Camp reads his own story, and his understated delivery adds to pull the listener into it. 
His accents are flawless and add definition to each character. And his playful side shows in the touches he adds to the very end of each podcast, where his contact information changes frequently and always has a humorously mystic tone. I'll add here that I read recently on his blog that the one thing his family and friends did not like was his voice in this. They are so wrong. It is perfect. This is hands down one of my favorite books of the year. I absolutely loved it, and I anxiously awaited each weekly upload until the entire book was finished. I only wish it were available in printed form so I could give the book to people who don't listen to audiobooks. Assam and Darjeeling has earned the SFF Audio Essential label, and I encourage you to seek it out. Julie, thank you so much. If anybody else would like to do a review of any book, you know what I mean? If that's what you're into and you've got a nice little book there, you think the sofa audience, the sofa community needs to know about this, drop it down on MP3. I would love to play it. Little articles are great. Pads the show, don't you know? Yes. So we come on to new titles. This is my little section. This is this is mine. This is my little bit. <laughs> This is where I get to do, I get to play. It's like I'm standing watching someone playing a video game and it's like, can I have a go? Can I have a go? So this is my little bit. Yes, new titles. In the new titles section this week, we have two books that have landed on the desk. There's one, two. Well, actually, there's three. There's the other one. But it's written by someone, I can't pronounce the name. So I need to kind of check up how professional check up and make sure how we kind of pronounce our name just to get it kind of spot on right i mean links are always on the side but you know i like to kind of make sure you know i'm very fastidious about that i like to get the names correct as we know first one then is comes from pan macmillan and it's a hardback and the price is hit me mike there 14.99 dog fellows ghost by gavin smith and actually I probably wouldn't have picked this one again in, this is why I like getting kind of, this. it's nice I've kind of phoned up and got the publishers to kind of work out deals to send us like new titles and I wouldn't have kind of maybe picked this one up and looked at it, but it's when you kind of get in deep and kind of read a few pages and read a bit of blurb and you know, stuff like that, that's when you think that sounds alright, so this one, Dogfellow's Ghost, Gavin Smith, and actually like I say, it's Pan Macmillan, but it's part of the group Pan Macmillan New Writing. And it sounds like what I can kind of find on the website and the back of the kind of book cover is it's kind of dedicated to discovering kind of new new novelists out there. And Gavin Smith, and it doesn't, that's one thing, and I can't find much on Gavin Smith. And this is the only bit of blurb I've got by him. Gavin Smith has worked in the further education and taught for Open University. He lives in Exeter. And that's it. Gavin hasn't got a website, or I can't see it out there. So, but this is his first novel. So I'll give you the blurb on the on the kind of the, the inside flap, just so you can kind of get a taste of what you feel. A new century has begun, and new fields of science are shaking man's longest-held beliefs. And on a tropical island somewhere in the Pacific, new kinds of creatures are being conceived. Yet the master who made them has disappeared, and for one of his creations, the loss is unbearable. Neither entirely man nor wholly animal, Dogfellow is both more and less the sum of his parts. Pitifully conflicted, his loyalty to his lost creator is, is at war with other more human desires. And Dogfellow alone can unlock the secrets of a strange and terrible past. 
gripping and poignant. Dogfellow's Ghost is a timely allergy on freedom, slavery and the wilderness of the human spirit. And I tell you, the cover, it's, you kind of just looking at it, there's, there's a bit like a, a dog's eye, kind of super input, or kind of faded in the background and there's palm trees, as if like this desert island kind of story. It's kind of similar, you know, it was kind of tickling my interest. It seems, it might not even be similar, but you know, like kind of the island of Dr. Moreau where kind of strange creatures have kind of been invented and kind of in, and made. And I've had a kind of little kind of read through. And it's, it's one of them books where it's kind of, you know, you get not kind of like straight away hooked, but it certainly kind of, it's grabs your attention and kind of keeps making you want to kind of keep on reading and reading. Although up to now it does with me. So, yes, look out for Gavin Smith's Dogfellow Ghost, Pan Macmillan, part of the New Writers Group. So the next one is a paperback by Orbit Books, comes in at $7.99, and it's Astropolis, book two, Earth Ascendant, by Sean Williams. I'll just give you a bit of a heads up on Sean Williams, author of 70 published short stories and 27 novels, nominated for the Dittmar and Aureles Award and the prestigious Philip K. Dick Award for Saturn Returns. His work has been published around the world in numerous languages, online and in spoken word edition. His current projects include Astropolis, which is what, you know, this is the kind of second book I have got, a gothic noir genre bend in space opera trilogy. He's also messing around with Broken Land, a dark fantasy series for children set in the same fantasy universe as Books of Change. He's also written the novelization of computer genre games Star Wars The Force Unleashed. I'm sure we've just got that on, on the game for read for his Wii, which debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list in August. His fifth collection of short fiction, Magic Dirt... The Best of Sean Williams was launched earlier this year. And fingers crossed, I might be able to get some short stories off Sean Williams. I'll give you a little kind of blurb on the back. Emir Bergamak's life has been nothing if not interesting. One might be tempted to say that it's taken the worst of the universe could throw at him and emerge triumphant. But after returning from the grave to the ruler galaxy, Emir's problems are only beginning. Caught between saboteurs, spies and assassins, his personal quest remains unchanged to find the people responsible for the slow wave that killed the most advanced minds in the galaxy and bring them to justice. Actually, the independence is of one of his old books. Saturn Returns is a wildly original, totally convincing, all-round wonderful novel. The Guardian claims, Williams renders the passage of eons and the rise and fall of civilizations with cosmic poignancy. Kevin G. Anderson says a compelling story of personal bravery and loyalty set against a huge backdrop of galactic disasters and the very end of civilization. Do you know what I mean? Independent, <laughs> exceedingly good space opera. You can't get better than that. What, what more do you want? So, Astropolis by Sean Williams, book two, Earth's Ascendant by Orbit Books. There's the two for this week's recommendations. Again, if I get any more through the post next week, I will certainly tell you all about them. So we come on now to the fact article by JJ Campanella. I'm very proud to have this. Funny, I asked Jim, I think it was last week, I said, have you sent this, Jim? And he sent it three weeks ago. That's how puzzled I am. So Jim, thank you so much. 
and I hope you enjoyed the review last week of your good self. So this is the October news, science news, GG Campanella. Jim, over to you, sir. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another chapter of Science News Update with me, Jim Campanella. Frankly, I wasn't too sure how to begin this uh, update tonight without sounding overly dramatic. But here goes. The world as we know it is going to change very soon. A revolution is quietly taking place that will potentially change the way you interact with your doctor, how you get a job, and how the legal world works. It will even change how you look at yourself in life. At this point, you are wondering what in the blazes I could be nattering on about. Let me tell you. Within the next few years, the $1,000 genome will be achievable. Again, you are probably saying, uh, yeah, so I still don't know what you're talking about. I'm talking about our lives becoming Gattaca. Well, maybe not Gattaca, but at least a much milder version of Gattaca. Remember the movie Gattaca with Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke? If you don't remember it, let me refresh your memory. At its core, the story involved a future in which everyone's entire genomic sequence is read, then analyzed, and then placed into a national database when they're born. The database is accessible to all corporate and governmental bodies. Your genome in the Gattaca world determined all your rights and privileges. If you have any potential genetic defects that lead to physical or mental weakness, you are immediately destined for the lowest ranks of society, called the invalids or the invalids. I believe they pronounced it invalids in the movie. Ethan Hawke plays a character who falls into that category. Uh, With bad eyesight and a weak heart, he is destined to be a janitor. But he believes that genetics do not determine who you are. And he decides that By deceit, he can rise above his genome. For those of you who have not seen the movie, I highly recommend it, and I will leave the plot right there so you can enjoy it all. What am I getting at? The magic number of $1,000 has been suggested as the amount that insurance companies will happily pay for their clients to get their genome sequenced. If this becomes reality, then medicine, the law, everything changes. Imagine that in 10 years, you propose to a woman. She doesn't want a prenuptial agreement, but she does demand to see the DNA analysis of your entire genome. Send it over to her general practitioner, and he will send back his own conclusion on your genetic fitness. What is your potential fiancé looking for? Well, she knows from her own DNA sequence analysis that she carries recessive traits for a whole series of nasty diseases, including blindness, dwarfism, sickle cell anemia, and quadrophenia. All right, I'm kidding on the last one. But but she simply wants to make sure that you do not have those recessives also. Those are physical diseases, and she has a right to know the potential you have to give those traits to any offspring you two might have. And I guess she has the right to know whether you have a high probability of heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and Alzheimer's. It's always nice to know whether your husband or wife may die of some disease at a young age or simply lose their mind. But we're getting into a gray area at this point. Heart disease and cancer are especially iffy kinds of diseases that depend not only on your genetics and on the environment you live in, but partly on chance as well. So 
these diseases are way less predictable in their emergence. But there are other things that your little missy might be looking for before she says I do. Or for that matter, things that you may be looking for in her genome. Imagine that there are human genes that affect pair bonding. Translation, how faithful you are potentially going to be to your spouse. And you may say, very cute, Dr. Science, but you know very well that there is just nothing like that. But if you're thinking that, well, you'd be surprisingly wrong. Apparently there are such genes. They were originally discovered in the small mammals' voles by the research group led by Dr. Hase Volum of the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. Depending on their genetic makeup, some male voles are apparently much more faithful to their pair-bonded mates than others. Yeah, but those are rodents, you're saying. No better than rats. However, the researchers went on to find those same genes are apparently in humans, and this work was presented in September in the journal The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Vasopressin is an important neuropeptide. It's found in most mammals, including humans and voles. It's a peptide hormone which is stored in vesicles at the posterior pituitary. A vesicle is a small, hollow bubble of membrane used for storage and transport inside of a cell. Most of the vasopressin is stored in the posterior pituitary to be released either into the bloodstream or directly into the brain. Although the hormone is very important for kidney function, in fact, primarily important for kidney function, it also has effects on the brain and the central nervous system. In recent years, there's been particular interest in the role of vasopressin in social behavior. It's thought that the vasopressin, released into the brain during sexual activity, initiates and sustains patterns of activity that support the pair bond between sexual partners. In particular, the vasopressin seems to induce the male to become aggressive toward other males. Now, originally this was observed in voles, but apparently humans are not without a genetic counterpart. Volum's study examined whether genetic differences in the protein receptor for vasopressin in the brain could account for differences in how well humans paired up and stayed paired up. They made use of data from the twin and offspring study in Sweden, which includes over 550 twins and their partners or spouses. The gene under study codes for one of the receptors for that hormone vasopressin. The team found that men who carry one or two copies of a variant of this vasopressin receptor gene, allele 334, often behave differently in relationships than men who lack this gene variant. Volum said, quote, Women married to men who carry one or two copies of allele 334 were, on average, less satisfied with their relationships than women married to men who didn't carry this allele, unquote. So what about the future of the law and genetics? Okay, you're getting a divorce and your wife is going to take you for everything in the settlement since you were caught cheating on her en flagrante. What defense does your lawyer employ? Well, Judge, according to Mr. Jones's genetic tests, he is genetically incapable of being faithful because he has two variant alleles of the vasopressin receptor 1A gene, Mrs. Jones should have seen that on his genetic test when she married him. You cannot blame Mr. Jones and expect him to go against his basic nature. His genetic makeup forced him into the smart car with those two waitresses. Seriously, 
This will become the new Twinkie defense. Remember the Twinkie defense? I could not help killing that room full of people because my body was poisoned by junk food and I could not think straight. It was not my fault. Going back to our original proposal example, it may become that the woman you propose to will not even bother to demand the results of that genetic test. However, she may not marry you until you sign a prenup that includes a sworn statement that you do not have the vasopressin receptor gene variant. Yes, honey, this proves I will stay faithful. Yeah, sure it will. What else can we dig out of the human genome that may be misused? Hmm. Let's say you apply for a job as a teacher. Now, obviously, working with kids is a sensitive post, and you do not want anyone prone to violence in such a position. Could your genome give you away as a crazed, chainsaw-wielding maniac? Well, that's what some geneticists say. Monoamine oxidase A is another neuropeptide. Andreas Meyer Lindenberg and his research group out of Washington University published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy on genetic variants of the monoamine oxidase A gene. The gene is X-linked, meaning that men have one copy of it and women two. Just like other mutant genes like colorblindness, which is rare in women because having two gene copies protects them, men are prone to odd variants of this oxidase gene, while women would rarely get it. What does it do? According to Meyer Lindenberg, quote, increases the risk of impulsivity and violence in humans and animals, unquote. The low-expression variant seems to predict a hyper-responsive amygdala during emotional arousal. Translation into plain English. When these guys get angry, they get angrier quicker than average, and they become a great deal more angry than average. We are not talking the Incredible Hulk here, but you probably do not want to be around when these guys, yes, guys, get pissed off. I'm sorry, Mr. Jones, but despite the fact that you have an exemplary academic record, work with the poor, volunteer nursing cancer patients, do crochet, and have a doctoral degree from Columbia University in teaching, we cannot offer you this teaching position. It appears that your genomic tests indicate that you are a low-level expressor of monoamine oxidase A. You could be a serious future danger to students. I'm sorry, sir, neither the school district nor this institution is prepared for such a future calamity. Do you doubt that such things are possible? Maybe, maybe not. Perhaps I just have a darker view of human nature than most, but I can just too easily imagine that scenario. Even though we cannot sequence whole genomes yet cheaply, there are already companies out there who will analyze, quote, important genomic markers, unquote. That means they will look for a limited number of gene variants for breast cancer, colon cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, etc., without sequencing the whole shebang. By the way, if you have the bucks, you can have your entire genome sequenced. Kenome Inc., Actually, truthfully, I'm not sure whether this is pronounced gnome with a silent K or canome. I would imagine it's probably pronounced canome. Canome Inc., a startup company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, is quite willing to do that sequencing for you. Anyone with $350,000 to spare and an adventurous spirit can now have his or her own genome sequenced. Those other companies that I mentioned offer cheaper personal genomic services. Among these are 23andMe for about $1,000, Navigenics for about 2300 
and Decode, which I believe is based in Iceland, for those of you in Europe, at about $3,000. They all offer analysis on thousands of gene variations to predict risk of disease or assess ancestry and other traits. The cost with those other companies is considerably less, obviously, than what Kenome charges because the other companies do much less work than sequencing the 3 billion bases in the human genome. And apparently, I am not the only one worried that this sort of information can be harmful and dangerous if disseminated in a careless manner, like some of these web-based companies seem to be doing. For example, 23andMe, Inc., seriously, seriously, wants to become the newest social interaction tool, like Twitter. They think that people will line up to get their markers read so that they can compare them to each other in bars and pubs and websites like Facebook. Oh, look, Gwen, we have the same CF24A marker on chromosome 6. We must both be descended from ancient Scottish royalty. See? And you said we had nothing in common. Sadly, I can seriously imagine some of the millennial generation actually comparing their genomes to help get a date, just like that. Well, in April of this year, the state of New York and the Department of Health issued a cease and desist order to 22 gene marker companies. The state decided that if the U.S. federal government was doing nothing to regulate these companies, then they would. So they insisted that the companies required state licenses before they could be allowed any more genetic analyses. The chief worry, even now, is that these tests are not clinically validated, so it's unclear how accurate the results are for predictions about health. The test results could lead to unnecessary anxiety, or worse, to false confidence. I mean, imagine, someone whose test indicates no predisposition for diabetes might abandon efforts to diet and exercise. The New England Journal of Medicine suggested in one article that, quote, doctors should tell patients that any information derived from these services is essentially useless and that people interested in their genetic data should ask again in a few years when it can be trusted, unquote. In June of this year, California followed New York's lead and sent out their own cease and desist letters to 13 companies doing sequencing there. According to the California Department of Public Health, these companies were, quote, scaring a lot of people to death, unquote. After the warning, a few of these companies claimed to be in compliance with the California state laws, while others decided they simply could not be bothered and stopped offering the services in California altogether. As I said at the beginning of all this, the world is changing. Usually you can't observe these changes. The world evolves around you, but you don't notice very much. This time, I think, a visible revolution is coming. We now know a huge amount about the human genome, and that info is only going to increase. And as it does, it will add gasoline to the fire. I know, I know what you're thinking. This is all supposed to be to the good. The revolution in personal genomics is supposed to help cure disease, make us healthier, make us happier, make us more content. But I guess I can only too easily see a world in which people are mistreated for their genetic predispositions. Unfortunately, I can see an even worse scenario than prejudice for your genetics. What's worse? Well, it's something that the world of Gattaca didn't even suggest. Imagine that you're one of those many people who do not have health insurance. That means you will not be able to afford to get the sequencing done. What then? Will it be government subsidized? Will you go without? Certainly, if you go without, 
you have the potential to become a third-class citizen because even if you have superior genetics, no one will ever know about it. If 23andMe gets their way and trading genomic info actually becomes the new trend, and if society demands to know that info, for example, beaming to one another's cell phones as part of a normal social interaction, what will become of you without that info? The scenario is unpleasant, but we may be headed in that direction. To sum this all up, I agree with Vincent. That's Ethan Hawke's character in Gattaca. We are more than our genomes. Our DNA does not define us. We define ourselves. Those people who would tell you that your abilities and destiny were already determined on the day that you were born by your DNA have no idea what they're talking about. They're simply spouting a modern version of the ancient predestination principle. It's simply untrue. We are not voles. We are not mice. Though we might share much with them, I cannot believe that we are the mindless animals that many people would lump us with. We are not governed by every whim of the hormone and neuropeptide. We are greater than that. And I hope that this newest attempt to quantitate what is human eventually discovers that truism. Thanks for listening to me and my rantings. As always, take care, and I hope I have inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Oh, Jim, thank you so much. Jim was telling us that he's got relatives staying over and they're actually staying in the room where all his kind of equipment is to kind of do narrations and stuff like that because I've been sending over a number of short stories lately. He's like, Tony, man, I've got a family here. There will be some more coming, Jim. I can promise you that, sir. Thank you anyways. Thank you very much. So we get on to Main Fiction by F. Paul Wilson. And I can remember reading F. Paul Wilson was probably... One of the kind of early writers where I read, you know, where I kind of latched onto, you know, it was in that kind of era when I first started reading and writing, reading and writing, <laughs> in twenties, round about the kind of Clive Barker era that I was going through. F. Paul Wilson was out there, you know, pushing some great books out there, you know, with kind of that the kind of run up to Halloween. It's always nice to kind of get someone who's kind of known for that genre. So just to give you a little background on F. Paul Wilson. Francis Paul Wilson, born 1946, Jersey City, an American author, primarily known for science fiction and horror genres. His debut novel was Healer, 1976. Wilson is also a part-time practicing family physician. He made his first sale in 1972, Analog, while actually still a medical school graduate. He graduated in 1973 and continued to write science fiction throughout the 70s. In 1981, he ventured into the horror genre with the international bestseller, The Keep. In the 1990s, he became a true genre hopper, moving away from science fiction, actually, and then full-time into horror, to medical thrillers and branching into kind of interactive scripts for Disney Interactive and other multimedia companies. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to have F. Paul Wilson and Faces. Bite her face off. No pain. Her dead already. Kill her quick like others. Not one make pain. Not her fault. The boyfriend groan but not move. Face way on ground now. Got from behind. Got quick, never see. He can live. 
Girl, look me after the boyfriend go down. Gasp first when see face start scream. Two claws not cut short rip her throat before sound get loud. Her sick scared look just like all others. Hate that look. Hate it terrible. Sorry, girl, not your fault. Chew her face skin. Chew all. Chew hard and swallow. Warm, wet, redness makes sickish but chew and chew must eat face. Must get all down. Keep down. Leave the eyes. The boyfriend groan again. Move arm. Must leave quick. Take last look. Blood and teeth and stare eyes that once pretty girl face. Sorry, girl, not your fault. Got go, get way, hurry. First take money, girl money. Take the boyfriend wallet also too. Always take money, need money. Go now, not too far. Climb wall of near building. Find dark spot where can see and not be seen. Where can wait? Soon the detective Harrison arrive. In down below can see the boyfriend roll over, get to knees, sway, see him look the girlfriend, the boyfriend scream, terrible, bad to hear, make so sad, make cry. Kevin Harrison heard Jacoby's voice on the other end of the line and wanted to be sick. Don't say it, he groaned. Sorry, said Jacoby. It's another one. Where? West 49th, right near. I'll find it. All he had to do was look for the flashing red lights. I'm on my way. Shouldn't take me too long to get in from Monroe at this hour. We got all night, Lieutenant. Unsaid but well understood was an admonishing, you're the one who wants to live on Long Island. Beside him in the bed, Martha spoke from deep in her pillow as he hung up. Not another one? Yeah. Oh, God. When is it gonna stop? When I catch the guy. Her hand touched his arm gently. I know all this responsibility's not easy. I'm here when you need me. I know. He leaned over and kissed her. Thanks. He left the warm bed and skipped the shower. No time for that. A fresh shirt, yesterday's rumpled suit, a tie shoved into his pocket, and he was off into the winter night. With his secure little ranch house falling away behind him, Harrison felt naked and vulnerable out here in the dark. As he headed south on Glencove Road towards the LIE, he realised that Martha and the kids were all that were holding him together these days. His family had become an island of sanity and stability in a world gone mad. Everything else was in flux. For reasons he still could not comprehend, he had volunteered to head up the search for this killer. Now his whole future in the department had come to hinge on the success in finding him. The papers had named the maniac the facelift killer. As apt a name as tabloids could want, but Harrison resented it. The moniker was callous, trivialising the mutilations perpetrated on the victims. 
but it had caught on with the public and they were stuck with it, especially with all the ink the story was getting. Six killings, one a week for six weeks in a row, and eight million people in panic. Then for almost two weeks, the city had gone without a new slaying. Until tonight. Harrison's stomach pitched and rolled at the thought of having to look at one of those faceless corpses again. That's enough, Harrison said, averting his eyes from the faceless corpse. The raw, gouged, bloody flesh, the exposed muscle and bone were bad enough, but it was the eyes, those naked, lidless, staring eyes, that were the worst. This makes seven, Jacoby said at his side. Squat, dark, jowly, the sergeant was chewing a big wad of gum noisily, aggressively, as if he had a grudge against it. I can count. Anything new? Nah. Same M.O. as ever. Throat slashed, money stolen, face gnawed off. Harrison shuddered. He had come in as special investigator after the third facelift killing. He had inspected the first three via coroner's photos. Those had been awful, but nothing could match the effect of the real thing up close and still warm and oozing. This was the fourth fresh victim he had seen. There was no getting used to this kind of mutilation, no matter how many he saw. Jacoby put on a good show, but Harrison sensed the revulsion under the sergeant's armour. And yet, beneath all the horror, Harrison sensed something. There was anger here, sick anger and hatred of spectacular proportions. But beyond that, something else an indefinable something that had drawn him to this case. Whatever it was, that something called to him and still held him captive. If he could identify it, maybe he could solve this case and wrap it up and save his ass. If he did solve it, it would be all on his own because he wasn't getting much help from Jacoby and even less from his assigned staff. He knew what they all thought that he had taken the job as a glory grab, a shortcut to the top. Sure, they wanted to see this thing wrapped up too, but they weren't shedding any tears over the shit he was taking in the press and on TV and from City Hall. Their attitude was clear. If you want the spotlight, Harrison, you got to take the heat that goes with it. They were right, of course. He could have been working on a quieter case, like where all the winos were disappearing to. He'd chosen this instead. But he wasn't after the spotlight, damn it. It was this case. Something about this case. He suddenly realised that there was no one around him. The body had been carted off. Jacoby had wandered back to his car. He had been left standing alone at the far end of the alley. And yet not alone. Someone was watching him. He could feel it. The realisation sent a little chill, one completely unrelated to the cold February wind, trickling down his back. A quick glance around showed no one paying him the slightest bit of attention. He looked up. There. Somewhere in the darkness above, someone was watching him. Probably from the roof. He could sense the piercing scrutiny and it made him a little weak. That was no ghoulish neighbourhood voyeur up there. That was the facelift killer. He had to get to Jacoby, have him seal off the building. But he couldn't act spooked. He had to act calm, casual. See the detective, Harrison's eyes. See from way up in dark, 
tall, thin, hair brown, nice eyes, soft brown eyes, not hard like many, many eyes. Look here, even from here see eyes make wide, him know it me. Watch the detective Harrison turn slow, walk slow. Tell inside him want to run, must leave here, leave quick. Bend low, run, cross roof, jump to next, and next, again, till most block away. Then down wall, wrap scarf, round head, hide bad face, hunch inside big, big coat, walk through lighted spots. Hate light, hate crowds, theaters here, movies and plays. Like them, some night sneak in and see. See one with man in mask. Hang from wall behind big drapes. Make cry. Wish their mask for me. Follow street long way to river. See many lights across river. Far past there is place where grew. Never want to go back to there. Never. Catch back of truck. Ride home. Home. Bright bulb hang ceiling, not care. The old Jesse waiting. The Jesse friend. Only friend. The Jesse's eyes not see ever when the Jesse look at me. Her face not wear sick scared look. Hate that look. Come in kitchen window. The Jesse's face wrinkled black. Smile. When hear me come, TV on, always on. The Jesse cannot watch. Say it company for her. You're so late tonight. Hard work, get monies tonight. Feel sick, want cry, hate kill, wish stop. That's nice. Are you gonna put it in the drawer? Doing now. Empty wallets. Put money in slots. One first slot. Five next slot. Then tens and twenties. So the Jesse can pay when boy brings foods. Sometimes eats steeled foods. Mostly the Jesse call for foods. The old Jesse hardly walk. Good. Do not want her go out. Bad People's round here, many hurt one who not see. One bad man try hurt Jesse once, push through door, though only the blind old Jesse lives here. Lucky the Jesse not along that day. Not lucky, bad man, hit the Jesse, laugh hard, then look me, get sick scared look, hate That look, kill him quick, put in tub, bleed there, bad man, friend come soon after, kill him also too. Late at night, take both dead bad men out, go through window, carry down wall, throw in river. No bad men come again, ever. I've been waiting all night for my bath, do you think you can help me a little? Always help, but 
but the old Jesse always asked. The Jesse, very polite, sponge the old Jesse back in tub, rinse her hair. Think of Detective Harrison, his kind eyes must talk him. Once stop this, stop now. Maybe we'll understand. Will can feel. Seven grisly murders in eight weeks. Kevin Harrison studied a photo of the latest victim taken before she was mutilated, a nice eight by ten glossy furnished by her agent, a real beauty, a dancer with Broadway dreams. He tossed the photo aside and pulled the stack of files towards him. The remnants of six lives in this pile, somewhere within, had to be an answer. The thread that linked each of them to the facelift killer. But what if there was no common link? What if all the killings were at random, linked only by the fact that they were beautiful? Seven deaths all over the city, all with their faces gnawed off, gnawed. He flipped through the victims one by one and studied their photos. He had begun to feel he knew each one of them personally. Mary Dietrich, twenty, a junior at NYU, killed in Washington Square Park on January fifth. She was the first. Mia Chandler, twenty-five, a secretary at Merrill Lynch, killed January thirteen in Battery Park. Ellen Beasley, twenty-two, a photographer's assistant, killed in an alley in Chelsea on January twenty-second. Hazel Hogg, thirty, artist agent, killed in her Soho loft on January twenty-seven. Elizabeth Payne, twenty-eight, housewife, killed on February second while jogging late in Central Park. Joan Perrin, twenty-five, a model from Brooklyn, pulled from her car while stopped at a light on the Upper East Side on February eighth. He picked up the eight by ten again, and the last, Liza Lee, twenty-one, dancer, lived across the river in Jersey City, ducked into an alley for a toot with her boyfriend tonight, never came out. Three blondes, three brunettes, one redhead. Some stacked, some on the flat side. All corks except for Perrin. All lookers. And besides that, how in the world could these women be linked? They came from all over town, and they met their respective ends all over town. Well, you sure hit the bullseye about that roof, Jacoby said as he burst into the office. Harrison straightened in his chair. What'd you find? Blood. Whose? The victims, no prints, no hairs, no fibers. We're working on it, but how'd you figure out to check the rooftop? Lucky guess. Harrison didn't want to provide Jacoby with more grist for the departmental gossip mill by mentioning his feeling of being watched from up there, but the killer had been watching, hadn't he? Any prelims from pathology? Jacoby shrugged and stuffed three sticks of gum into his mouth. Then he tried to talk. Fame as ever, money gone, throat ripped open by a pair of sharp pointed instruments. Not knives. The bite marks on the face are unusual. The teeth that made them aren't human, but the saliva is. The non-human teeth part. More teeth, bigger and sharper teeth than they found in any human mouth, had baffled them all from the start. Early on, someone remembered a horror novel or a movie where the killer used some sort of weird false teeth to bite his victims. They had sent him off on a wild goose chase to all the dental labs, looking for records of bizarre bite prostheses. No dice. No one had 
seen or even heard of teeth that could gnaw off a person's face. Harrison shuddered. What could explain wounds like that? What were they dealing with here? The irritating pops, snaps and crackles of Jacoby's gum filled the office. I liked it better when you smoked. Jacoby's reply was cut off by the phone. The sergeant picked it up. Detective Harrison's office, he said, listening a moment, then with his hand over the mouthpiece, passed the receiver to Harrison. Some fairy wants to speak to you, he said with an evil grin. Fairy? Hey, he said, getting up and walking towards the door. I don't mind, I'm a liberal kind of guy, you know? Harrison shook his head with disgust. Jacoby was getting less likable every day. Hello? Harrison here. Sorry, disturb you, Detective Harrison. The voice was soft, pitched somewhere between a man and a woman's, and sounded as if the speaker had half a mouthful of saliva. Harrison had never heard anything like it. Who could be? And then it struck him. It was 3am. Only a handful of people knew he was here. Do I know you? No. Watch you tonight. You almost see me in dark. That same chill from earlier tonight ran down Harrison's back again. Are, are you who I, I think you are? There was a pause, then one soft word, more sobbed than spoken. Yes. If the reply had been cocky, something along the line of, and just who do you think I am, Harrison would have looked for much more in the way of corroboration, but that single word and the soul-deep heartbreak that propelled it banished all doubt. My God, he looked around frantically, no one in sight. Where the fuck was Jacoby now when he needed him? This was the facelift killer. He needed a trace. Got to keep him on the line. I have to ask you something to be sure you are who you say you are. Yes. Do take anything from the victims. I mean, besides their faces. Money. Take money. This is him. The department had withheld the money part from the papers. Only the real facelift killer could know. Can I ask something else? Yes. Harrison was asking this one for himself. What do you do with the faces? He had to know. The question drove him crazy at night. He dreamed about those faces. Did the killer tack them on the wall or press them in a book or freeze them or did he wear them around the house like that leather-faced character from that chainsaw movie? On the other end of the line, he sensed sudden agitation and panic. No, cannot say. Cannot. Okay, okay, take it easy. Will you help? Stop. Oh, yes. Oh, God, yes, I'll help you stop. He prayed his genuine, heartfelt desire to end this was coming through. I'll help you any way I can. A long pause then. You hate? Hate me? Harrison didn't trust himself to answer that right away. He searched his feelings, quickly but carefully. No, he said finally. I think you've done some... Awful, horrible things, but strangely enough, I don't hate you. And that was true. Why didn't he hate this murdering maniac? 
Oh, he wanted to stop him more than anything in the world and wouldn't hesitate to shoot him dead if the situation required it. But there was no personal hatred for the facelift killer. What is it in you that speaks to me, he wondered. Thank you, said the voice, couched once more in a sob. And then the killer hung up. Harrison shouted into the dead phone, banged it on his desk, but the line was dead. What the hell's the matter with you? Jacoby said from the office door. That so-called fairy on the phone was the facelift killer, you idiot. We could have had a trace if you'd stuck around. Bullshit. He knew about taking the money. So why'd he talk like that? It's a dumbass way to try to disguise your voice. And then it suddenly hit Harrison like a sucker punch to the gut. He swallowed hard and said, Jacoby, how do you think your voice would sound if you had a mouth crammed full of teeth, much larger and sharper than the kind found in a typical human mouth? Harrison took genuine pleasure in the way Jacoby's face blanched slowly to yellow-white. He didn't get home again until seven the following night. The whole department had been in an uproar all day. This was the first break that they had had in the case. It wasn't much, but contact had been made. That was the important part, and although Harrison had done nothing he could think of to deserve any credit, he had accepted the commissioner's compliments and encouragement on the phone shortly before he had left the office tonight. But what was most important to Harrison was the evidence from the call. Damn, he wished it had been taped, that the killer wanted to stop. They didn't have one more goddamn clue tonight than they had had yesterday, but the call offered hope that soon there might be an end to this horror. Martha had dinner waiting. The kids were scrubbed and pyjamaed and waiting for their goodnight kiss. He gave them each a hug and poured himself a stiff scotch while Martha put them in the sack. Do you feel as tired as you look? She said as she returned from the bedroom wing. She was a big woman with bright blue eyes and natural dark blonde hair. Harrison toasted her with his glass. The expression dead on his feet has taken on a whole new meaning for me. She kissed him, then they sat down to eat. He had spoken to Martha a couple of times since he had left the house 20 hours ago. She knew about the phone call from the facelift killer, about the new hope in the department, about the case. But he was glad she didn't bring it up now. He was sick of talking about it. Instead, he sat in front of his cooling meatloaf and wrestled with the images that had been nibbling at the edges of his consciousness all day. What are you daydreaming about? Martha said. Without thinking, Harrison said, Annie. Annie who? My sister. Martha put her fork down. Your sister? Kevin, you don't have a sister. Not anymore, but I did. Her expression was alarmed now. Kevin, are you all right? I've known your family for ten years. Your mother has never once mentioned... We don't talk about Annie Marr. We try not to even think about her. She died when she was five. Oh, I'm sorry. Don't be. Annie was deformed, terribly deformed. She never really had a chance. Open trunk from inside. Get out. The Detective Harrison's house. Here. Cold night. Cold feel good. Trunk air make sick. Dizzy. Light here. Hurry. Round side of house. 
darker here. No one see. Look in window. Dark, but see good. Two little ones there sleeping. Move away. Not want them cry. Go more round. The detective Harrison with lady. Sit table near window. Must be wife. Pretty, but not also beauty. Not have mum face. Not like ones who die. Watch behind tree. Hungry. They not eat food. Talk, talk, talk. Cannot hear. The detective Harrison do most talk. Kind face. Kind eyes. Some terrible sad there. Hides. Him understands. Here in phone voice. Understands. Him one can stop kills. Spent day watching Detective Harrison car. All day watch at police house. Saw him come go many times. Soon dark open trunk with claw. Ride with him. Ride long. Wonder what town this? The Detective Harrison look this way. Stare like last night. Must not see me. Must not. Harrison stopped in mid-sentence and stared out the window as his skin prickled. That watched feeling again. It was the same as last night. Something was out in the backyard watching them. He strained to see through the wooded darkness outside the window but saw only shadows within shadows. But something was there. He could feel it. He got up and turned on the outside spotlights, hoping, praying that the backyard would be empty. It was. He smiled to hide his relief and glanced at Martha. Thought that raccoon was back. He left the spots on and settled back into his place at the table, but the thoughts racing through his mind made eating unthinkable. What if that maniac had followed him out here? What if the call had only been a ploy to get him off guard so that the facelift killer could do to Martha what he had done to the other women? My God. First thing tomorrow morning, he was going to call the local army boys and put in a security system. Cost be damned, he had to have it immediately. As for tonight, tonight he'd keep the thirty-eight under the pillow. Run way, run low and fast, get bushes before light come, must stay away now, not come back. The detective Harrison, feel me. Know when watched, him the one, sure. Walk in dark, in woods, see back many houses, come park, feel strange, see this park before, can not be. Then no, Monroe, this Monroe, born here, live here, hate Monroe, Monroe bad place, bad people, house, home, old home near here, there, cross park, old home, new color but same house, hate house, sit Unfroze park grass. Cry. Why Monroe? Do not want to be in Monroe. The mom gone. 
the sissy gone, the jimmy very gone, house here, dry tears, watch old home long time till light go out, wait more, go to windows, see new folk inside, the mum must took the sissy and go, where, how long, go to back, push cellar window, crawl in, see good in dark, new folk make nice cellar, wood on walls, rug on floor, no chain, sit floor, remember, remember hanging on wall, look little window near ceiling, watch kids play in park, cross street, want go with kids, want play there with kids, want have friends, but the mom won't let, never leave basement, too strong, break everything, have TV, broke it, have toys, broke them, stay in basement, chain round waist, hold the center pole, cannot leave, remember, terrible, bad things happen, run, run away, Monroe, never come back, till now, now back, Still hate house, want herd house. See cigarettes with matches. Light all, burn now. Watch rug burn, chair burn. So hot, run back to cold park. Watch house burn. See new folks run out. Trucks come, throw water. House burn and burn. Glad. But tears come anyway. Hate house. Now house gone. Hate Monroe. Wonder where mom and the sissy live now. Leave Monroe for new home and the old Jesse. The second call came the next day, and this time they were ready for it. The tape recorders were set. The computers were waiting to begin the tracing protocol. As soon as Harrison recognized the voice, he gave the signal. On the other side of the desk, Jacoby put on a headset and people started running in all directions. Off to the races. I'm glad you called, Harrison said. I've been thinking about you. You understand, said the soft voice. I'm not sure. Must help stop. I will. I will. Tell me how. Not. No. There was a pause. Harrison wasn't sure what to say next. He didn't want to push, but he had to keep him on the line. Did you hurt anyone last night? No. Saw houses. Your house. Your wife. Harrison's blood froze. Last night in the backyard. That had been the facelift killer in the dark. He looked up and saw genuine concern in Jacoby's eyes. He forced himself to speak. You were at my house. Why didn't you talk to me? No, no, cannot, let's see. Run away your house. Go mine. Yours. You live in Monroe. No, hate Monroe. Once lived, gone long burn old house, never go back. 
this could be important. Harrison phrased the next question carefully. You burned your old house? When was that? If you could just get a date, a year. Last night. Last night? Harrison remembered hearing the sirens and fire horns in the early morning darkness. Yes, hate house. And then the line went dead. He looked at Jacoby, who had picked up another line. Did we get the trace? Waiting to hear. Christ, he sounds retarded, doesn't he? Retarded. The words sent ripples across the surface of his brain. Non-human teeth. Munro, retarded. A picture was forming in the settling sediment. A picture he felt he should avoid. Maybe he is. You think that would make him easy to... Jacoby stopped listening to the receiver, then shook his head disgustedly. What? Got as far as the Lower East Side. He was probably calling from somewhere in one of the projects. If we had him another 30 seconds... We've got something better than a trace to some lousy payphone, Harrison said. We got his old address. He picked up his suit coat and headed for the door. Where are we going? Not we. Me. I'm going out to Monroe. Once he reached the town, it took Harrison less than an hour to find the facelift killer's last name. He first checked with the Monroe Fire Department to find the address of last night's house fire. Then he went down to the brick-fronted town hall and found the lot and block number. After that, it was easy to look up its history of ownership. Mr. and Mrs. Elwood Scott were the current owners of the land and the charred shell of a three-bedroom ranch that sat upon it. There had only been one other set of owners, Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Baker. He had lived most of his life in Monroe but knew nothing about the Baker family, but he knew where to find out. Captain Jeremy Hall, Chief of Police in the Incorporated Village of Monroe. Captain Hall hadn't changed much over the years, still had a big belly, long sideburns and hair cut bristly short on the sides. That was the in-look in those days, but Hall had been wearing his hair like that for at least 30 years. If not for his Bronx accent, he could have played a redneck sheriff in one of those southern chain gang movies. After the pleasantries and local boy leaves home to become big city cop and now comes to question small town cop banter, they got down to business. The bakers from North Park Drive, Hall said, after he had noisily sucked the top layer off his steaming coffee. Who could forget them? There was the mother, divorced, I believe, and the three kids, two girls and the boy. Harrison pulled out his notepad. The boy's name. What was it? Tommy, I believe. Yeah, Tommy, I'm sure of it. He's the one I want. Hall's eyes narrowed. He is, is he? You're working on the facelift case, aren't you? Right. And you think Tommy Baker might be your man? It's a possibility. What do you know about him? I know he's dead. Harrison froze. Dead? That can't be. Sure as hell can be. Without rising from his seat, he shouted through his office door. Murph, pull out the old file on the Baker case. 1984, I believe. 84? Harrison said. He and Martha had been living in Queens then. They hadn't moved back to Monroe yet. Right. A real messy affair. 
Tommy Baker was 13 years old when he bought it. And he bought it. Believe me, he bought it. Harry sat in glum silence watching his whole theory go up in smoke. The old Jesse sleeps. Stand by mirror near tub. Only mirror half. No like them. The Jesse not need one. Stare face. Bad face. Teeth. Teeth. Teeth and hair. Arms too thin. Too long. Claws. None have claws like mine. None have face like mine. Face not better. Eight pretty faces, but face still same. Still cause sick, scared look. Just like at home. Remember home. Do not want, but thoughts will not go. Faces. The sissy get the mom face. Beauty face. The Tommy get the dad face. Not see the dad. Never come home anymore. Who my face? Never see where come. Where my face come? My hands come. Remember home seller. Hate home. Hate seller more. Pull on chain around waist. Pull and pull. One out. Want play. Please. No one let. One day when the mom and the sissy go. The Tommy bring friends. Come down, cellar, bunch on stairs, stare. First time see sick, scared look, not understand. Friends, play, throw ball them, they run. They come back with rocks and sticks. Still sick, scared look, throw me, hit me, make cry, make the Tommy laugh. Whenever the mom and the sissy go, the Tommy come with boys and sticks, poke and hit, hurt, little hurt on skin, big hurt inside. Sick scared look hurt most of all, hate look, hate hurt, hate them, most hate the Tommy. One night, chain breaks, wait on wall for the Tommy, hurt him. Hurt the Tommy outside, hurt the Tommy inside. No, because pull inside, outside. The Tommy quiet, quiet, wet, red. The mommy and the sissy get sick, scared look and scream. Hate that look, run away, hide, never come back. Till last night. Cry more now. Cry quiet, in tub, so that Jesse not hear. Harrison flipped through the slim file on the Tommy Baker murder. This is it? We didn't need to collect much paper, Captain Hall says. I mean, the mother and sister were witnesses. There's some photos in that manila envelope at the back. Harrison pulled it free and slipped out some large black and whites. His stomach lurched immediately. My God. Yep, he was a mess. Gutted by his older sister. His sister? Yeah, apparently she was some sort of uh, freak of nature. Harrison felt the floor tilt under him, felt as if he was going to slide off the chair. Freak? He said, hoping Hall would notice the tremor in his voice. 
What did she look like? Never saw her. She took off after she killed the brother. No one's seen hide nor hair of her since. But there's a picture of the rest of the family in there. Harrison shuffled through the file until he came to a large color family portrait. He held it up. Four people. Two adults seated in chairs, a boy and a girl, about ten and eight, kneeling on the floor in front of them. A perfectly normal American family. Four smiling faces. But where's your oldest child? Where's your big sister? Where did you hide that fifth face while posing for this? What was her name? The one who's not there. The one who's not here. Not sure. Carla, maybe? Look at the front sheet under suspect. Harrison did. Carl Baker, called Carly, he said. Hall grinned. Right, Carly. Not bad for a guy getting ready for retirement. Harrison didn't answer. An ineluctable sadness filled him as he stared at the incomplete family portrait. Carly Baker. Poor Carly. Where did they hide you away? In the cellar? Locked in the attic? How did your brother treat you? Bad enough to deserve killing? Probably. No pictures of Carly, I suppose. Not a one. That figures. How about a description? The mother gave us one, but it sounded so weird, we threw it out. I mean, the girl sounded like she was half spider or something. He drained his cup. Then later on, I got into a discussion with Doc Alberts about it. He told me he was doing deliveries back about the time the kid was born. Said that they had a whole rash of monsters, all delivered within a few weeks of each other. The room started to tilt under Harrison again. Early December 1968, by chance? Yeah, how'd you know? He felt queasy. Lucky guess. Huh. Anyway, Doc Albert said they kept it quiet while they looked into a cause, but the little group of freaks, Cluster, he called them, was all there was. They figured that a bunch of mothers had been exposed to something nine months before, but whatever it had been was long gone. No monsters since. I understand most of them died shortly after birth anyway. Not all of them. Not that it matters, Hall said, getting up and pouring himself a refill from the coffee pot. Someday, someone will find a skeleton, probably somewhere out in Haskins marshes. Maybe but I wouldn't count on it. He held up the file. Can I get a Xerox of this? You mean the facelift killer is a 20-year-old girl? Martha's face clearly registered her disbelief. Not just any girl. A freak. Someone so deformed she really doesn't look human. Completely uneducated and probably mentally retarded to boot. Harrison hadn't returned to Manhattan. Instead, he'd headed straight for home, less than a mile from town hall. He knew the kids were at school and that Martha would be there alone. That's what, what he had wanted. He needed to talk this out with someone a lot more sensitive than Jacoby. Besides, what he had learned from Captain Hall and the Baker file had dredged up the most painful memories of his entire life. A monster, Martha said. 
Yeah. Born one on the outside, made one on the inside. But there's another child monster I want to talk about. Not Carly Baker. Annie. Anne Harrison. Martha gasped. That sister you told me about last night. Harrison nodded. He knew this was going to hurt, but he had to do it. He had to get it out. He was going to explode into a thousand twitching bloody pieces if he didn't. I was nine when she was born, December 2nd, 1968, a week after Carly Baker. Seven pounds, four ounces of horror. She looked more fish than human. His sister's image was imprinted in the rear walls of his brain, and it should have been after all those hours he had spent studying her loathsome face. Only her eyes looked human. The rest of her was awful. A lipless mouth, flattened nose, sloping forehead, fingers and toes fused so that they looked more like flippers than hands and feet. A bloated body covered with shiny skin that was dusky grey-blue. The doctors said she was that colour because her heart was bad, had a defect that caused a mixing of blue blood and red blood. A repulsed nine-year-old Kevin Harrison had dubbed her the Tuna, but never within earshot of her parents. She wasn't supposed to live long. A few months, they said, and she'd be dead. But she didn't die. Annie lived on and on. One year, two. My father and the doctors tried to get my mother to put her into some sort of institution. But mom wouldn't hear any of it. She kept Annie in the third bedroom and talked to her and cooed over her and cleaned up her shit and just hung over her all the time. All the time, Martha. Martha gripped his hand and nodded for him to go on. After a while it got so there was nothing else in Mum's life. She wouldn't leave Annie. Family trips became a thing of the past. Christ, if she and Dad went out to a movie, I had to stay with Annie. No babysitter was trustworthy enough. Our whole lives seemed to center around that freak in the back bedroom. And me? I was forgotten. After a while, I began to hate my sister. Kevin, you don't have to... Yes, I do. I've got to tell you how it was. By the time I was 14, just about Tommy Baker's age when he bought it, I thought I was going to go crazy. I was getting all B's in school, but did that matter? Hell no. Annie rolled halfway over today. Isn't that wonderful? Big deal. She was five years old, for Christ's sake. I was starting point guard on the high school varsity junior basketball team as a goddamn freshman. But did anyone come to my games? Hell no. I tell you, Martha, after five years of caring for Annie, our house was a powder keg. Looking back now, I could see it was my mother's fault for becoming so obsessed. But back then, at age 14, I blamed it all on Annie. I really hated her for being born a freak. He paused before going on. This was the really hard part. One night, when my dad had managed to drag my mother out to some company banquet that he had to attend, I was left alone to babysit Annie. On those rare occasions, my mother would always tell me to keep Annie company, you know, 
read her stories and such. But I never did. I'd let her lie back there alone with our old black-and-white TV while I sat in the living room watching the family set. This time, however, I went into her room. He remembered the sight of her lying there with the covers halfway up her fat little tuna body that couldn't have been much more than a yard in length. It was winter, like now, and his mother had dressed her in a flannel nightshirt. The coarse hair that grew off the back of her head had been wound into twin braids and fastened with pink bows. And his eyes brightened as I came into the room. She had never spoken, couldn't it seemed, her face could do virtually nothing in the way of expression, and her flipper-like arms weren't good for much either. You had to read her eyes, and that wasn't easy. None of us knew how much of a brain Annie had, or how much she understood of what was going on around her. My mother said she was bright, but I think my mother was a little wacko on the subject of Annie. Anyway... I stood over her crib and started shouting at her. She quivered at the sound. I called her every dirty name in the book. And as I said each one, I poked her with my fingers. Not enough to leave a bruise, but enough to let out some of the violence in me. I called her a lousy goddamn tuna fish with feet. I told her how much I hated her and how I wished she had never been born. I told her everybody hated her, and the one thing she was good for was a freak show. Then I said, I wish you were dead. Why don't you die? You were supposed to die years ago. Why don't you do everyone a favor and do it now? When I ran out of breath, she looked at me with those big eyes of hers, and I could see the tears in them and I knew she had understood me. She rolled over and faced a wall. I ran from the room. I cried myself to sleep that night. I thought I'd feel good telling her off, but all I kept seeing in my mind's eye was this 14-year-old bully shouting at a helpless 5-year-old. I felt awful. I promised myself that the first opportunity I had to be alone with her the next day... I'd apologize, tell her I really didn't mean the hateful things I'd said, promise to read to her and be her best friend, anything to make it up to her. I awoke the next morning to the sound of my mother screaming. Annie was dead. Oh my God, Martha said, her fingers digging into his arm. Naturally, I blame myself. But you said she had a heart defect. Yeah, I know, and the autopsy showed that that's what killed her. Her heart finally gave out. But I've, I've never been able to get it out of my head that my words were what made her heart give up. It sounds sappy and melodramatic, I know, and I've always felt that she was just hanging on to life by the slimmest margin and that I pushed her over the edge. Kevin, you shouldn't have to carry that around with you. Nobody should. The old grief and guilt were like a slowly expanding balloon in his chest. It was getting hard to breathe. In my coolest, calmest, most dispassionate moments, 
I convinced myself that it was all a terrible coincidence, that she would have died that night anyway, and that I had nothing to do with it. That's probably true, so... But that doesn't change the fact that the last memory of her life was of her big brother, the guy she probably thought was the neatest kid on Earth, who could run and play basketball, one of the three human beings who made up her whole world, who should have been her champion, her her defender against a world that could only greet her with revulsion and rejection, standing over her crib, telling her how much he hated her and how he wished she was dead. He felt the sobs begin to quake in his chest. He hadn't cried in over a dozen years, and he had no intention of allowing himself to start now. But there didn't seem to be any stopping it. It was like running downhill at top speed. If he tried to stop before he reached bottom, he'd go head over heels and break his neck. Gavin, you were only 14, Martha said soothingly. Yeah, I know. But if I could go back in time for just a few seconds, I'd go back to that night and wrap that rotten, hateful 14-year-old in the mouth before he got a chance to say a single word. But I can't. I can't ever say I'm sorry to Annie. I never got a chance to take it back, Martha. I never got a chance to make it up to her. And then he was blubbering like a goddamn wimp, letting loose half a lifetime's worth of grief and guilt and Martha's arms were around him, and she was telling him everything would be all right. All right. All right. The detective Harrison, understand, can tell. Want to go kill another face now. Must not. The detective Harrison, not like. Must stop. Detective Harrison, help stop. Stop for good. Best way, only one way to stop for good. Not jail, no chain, no little window. Not ever again, never. Only one way stop for good. The Detective Harrison will know, will understand, will do. Must call. Call now before dark, before pretty faces come out in night. Harrison had pulled himself together by the time the kids came home from school. He felt strangely buoyant inside, like he'd been purged in some way. Maybe all those shrinks were right after all. Sharing old hurts did help. He played with the kids for a while, then went into the kitchen to see if Martha needed any help with slicing and dicing. He felt as close to her now as he ever had. You okay? She said with a smile. Fine. She had just started slicing a red pepper for the salad. He took over for her. Have you decided what to do? She asked. He had been thinking about it a lot and come to a decision. Well, I've got to inform the department about Carly Baker, but I'm going to keep her out of the paper for a while. Why? I think if she's that freakish looking, the publicity might turn up someone who's seen her. Possibly it might come to that, but this case is sensational enough without tabloids like the Post and the Light turning it into a circus. Besides, I'm afraid of panic leading to some poor, deformed, innocent getting lynched. 
I think I can bring her in. She wants to come in. You sure of that? She so much has told me so. Besides, I can sense it in her. He saw Martha giving him a dubious look. I'm serious. We're somehow connected, like there's an invisible wire between us. Maybe it's because the same thing that deformed her and those other kids deformed Annie too. And Annie was my sister. Maybe that link is why I volunteered for this case in the first place. He finished slicing the paper, then moved on to the mushrooms. And after I bring her in, I'm going to track down her mother and start prying into what went on in Monroe in February and March of 68 to cause that so-called cluster of freaks nine months later. He would do that for Annie. It would be his way of saying goodbye and I'm sorry to his sister. But why does she take the faces? Martha asked. I don't know. Maybe because theirs were beautiful and hers is no doubt hideous. But what does she do with them? Who knows? I'm not all that sure I want to know. But right now, the phone rang. Even before he picked it up, he had an inkling of who it was. The first sibilant syllable left no doubt. Is this the detective, Harrison? Yes. Harrison stretched the coiled cord around the corner from the kitchen into the dining room, out of Martha's hearing. Will you stop me tonight? You want to give yourself up? Yes. Please, yes. Can you meet me at the precinct house? No. Okay, okay. God, he didn't want to spook her now. Where? Anywhere you say. Just you. All right. Midnight. Place where last face took. Bring gun, but no more cop. All right. He was automatically agreeing to everything. He'd work out the details later. You understand, Detective Harrison? Oh, Carly. Carly, I understand more than you know. A sharp intake of breath and then silence at the other end of the line. Finally, You know Carly? Yes, Carly, I know you. The sadness welled up in him again, and it was all he could do to keep his voice from breaking. I had a sister like you once, and you, you had a brother like me. Yes, said that soft, breathy voice. You understand. Come tonight, Detective Harrison. The line went dead. Wait, in shadows, the Detective Harrison will come. We'll bring lots, cop. Always see on TV show. Always brings lots. Protect him. Many guns. No need. Only one gun. The Detective Harrison's gun. Hims will shoot, stop, kills, stop forever. The Detective Harrison must do. No one else. The Carly cannot. Must be the Detective Harrison. Smart. No, the Carly. Understand. After stop, no more ugly Carly. No more thick, scared look. Bad face will go away forever and ever. 
Harrison had decided to go it alone. Not completely alone, he had a van waiting a block and a half away on 7th Avenue and a walkie-talkie clipped to his belt, but he hadn't told anyone who he was meeting or why. He knew if he did, they'd swarm all over the area and scare Carly off completely, so he had told Jacoby he was meeting an informant and that the van was just a safety measure. He was on his own here and wanted it that way. Carly Baker wanted to surrender to him and him alone. He understood that. It was part of the strange, tenuous bond between them. No one else would do. After he had cuffed her, he would call in the wagon. After that, he would be a hero for a while. He didn't want to be a hero. All he wanted was to end this thing, end the nightmare for the city and for poor Carly Baker. She'd get help, the kind she needed, and he'd use the publicity to springboard an investigation into what had made Annie and Carly and the others in their cluster what they were. It's all going to work out fine, he told himself as he entered the alley. He walked half its length and stood in the darkness. The brick walls of the buildings on either side soared up into the night. The ceaseless roar of the city echoed dimly behind him. The alley itself was quiet, no sound, no movement. He took out his flashlight and flicked it on. Carly? No answer. Carly Baker, are you here? More silence. Then, ahead to his left, the sound of a garbage can scraping along the stony floor of the alley. He swung the light that way and gasped. A looming figure stood a dozen feet in front of him. It could only be Carly Baker. She stood easily as tall as he, a good six foot two, and looked like a homeless street person, one of those animated rag piles that lived on subway grates in the winter. Her head was wrapped in a dirty scarf, leaving only her glittery dark eyes showing. The rest of her was muffled in a huge shapeless overcoat, baggy old polyester slacks with dragging cuffs and torn sneakers. Where the detective Harrison's gun, said the voice. Harrison's mouth was dry, but he managed to get his tongue working. In its holster. Take out, please. Harrison didn't argue with her. The grip of the heavy chief special felt damn good in his hand. The figure spread its arms. Within the folds of her coat, those arms seemed to bend the wrong way. And were those black hooked claws protruding from the cuffs of the sleeve? She said, Shoot. Harrison gaped in shock. The detective, Harrison, not shoot. Eyes wide, hands with gun and light shake. Say again, shoot. Carly, no. I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to take you in just as we agreed. No. Wrong. The detective Harrison not understand. Must shoot the Carly. Kill the Carly. Not jail. Shoot. Stop the kills. Stop the Carly. No. I can get you help, Carly. Really, I can. You'll go to a place where no one will hurt you. You'll get the medicine to make you feel better. Thought him understand. Not understand. Move closer. Put Clar out. Him back way. Back to wall. 
Shoot. Kill. Now. No, Annie, please. Not Annie. Carly. Carly. Right. Carly, don't make me do this. Only inches away now. Still not shoots. Other cops hiding, not shoot. Why not protect? Shoot. Pull scarf off face. Point claw at face. End. End, please. The Detective Harrison face go white. Mouth hang open, say, Oh my God. Get sick, scared look. Hate that look. Thought him understand. Say he know the Carly. Not stop look. Stop. Not think. Claw go out. Rip throat from Detective Harrison. Blood fly just like all the others. No. No, not want hurt. The Detective Harrison gurgle. Drop gun and light. Fall. Stare. Wait, other cops shoot. Please kill the Carly. Wait. No shoot. Then no. No cops. Only the poor Detective Harrison. Cry for the Detective Harrison. Then run. Run and climb. Up and down. Back to the new home. With the old Jesse. The Jesse glad to hear Carly come. The Jesse try talk. Carly go sit tub. Close door. Cry for the Detective Harrison. Cry long time. Break mirror million piece. Not see face again. Not ever. Never. The Jesse say, Carly, I want my bath. Will you scrub my back? Stop. Cry. Do the old Jesse's black back. Comb the Jesse's hair. Feel very sad. None ever comb the Carly's hair. Ever. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is F. Paul Wilson. Just like to say thank you very much to Paul. Don't go out there trying to selly selly that story. It is copyright to F. Paul Wilson. The narration today was by Paul Kajiji. Thank you, Paul. Paul has done a few stories for me and will soon be the voice of Mr. Corey Docatrua. So look out for that. And good luck to Paul. He's venturing out on becoming self-employed, a big step, leaving the kind of confines of the snug environment of like a work environment and he's actually going to do it himself so paul good luck and that wraps up starship sofa oral delights number 47 for this week just before i go just another little shout out if anyone is kind of up there knows their onions about wordpress and about moving actually moving websites over to wordpress please get in touch because i'm thinking of moving the whole starship sofa ship chauffeur over to wordpress you know and it's kind of there's a lot of things that kind of run through my mind that are kind of complicated and it's just like it's wearing us down to be quite honest so if anyone out there can kind of help do this kind of migration 
that would be fantastic. That would really help kind of the Starship Sofa. So drop us an email, starshipsofa at gmail.com. Again, all links go to the front of the site. They'll be on starshipsofa.com. So until next week, I would just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.